Hello everyone, it's November 13th, 2022. This week is HLS Part 2. SpaceX may have won the first round, but there is a second. Blue Origin and Dynetics have done a little reorganizing and partnership reshuffling and are now back to bid on who follows after Lunar Starship. So let's take a look and let's do the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 389 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Dennis. And no Ben. He's in an airport right now. <laughs> I think literally. <laughs> Although I think he might have actually got his Uber to the hotel by now. Okay. And so, yeah. But he was at the airport while we were first starting to watch Orion touchdown or splashdown. Yeah. And we were kind of narrating that for him. So uh, so he was kind of part of the show or part of the pre-show. Uh, so, yeah. yeah so um, I guess, yeah, people should know that as we record, we just got done watching the Artemis 1 mission come to its completion, and it touched down safely, as everyone knows now. Um, or touchdown or splashdown, I should say. It's not a touchdown, right? Um, it's a right, splashdown. Right. A little bit further out to sea, I guess, a different location somewhere um, because of some bad weather off the coast of San Diego. Um, but that wasn't uh, too big of a hindrance. And yeah, I mean, you know, there's not a whole lot to say right now. We'll probably cover it more next week, but it looks like everything went well, like super well, actually. Mm-hmm. So the whole mission now, I guess we can say from start to finish has been pretty much uh, both like uneventful and very eventful, you know, <laughs> in all the right ways for both. Right, right. All all the uh, all the dramatic things were like, oh, here's, you know, the moon and the earth passing near each other as, you know, mm-hmm. Artemis or as Orion goes here and there. Um, and like, yeah, the... The off-nominal stuff, like the, were just really just hiccups, right? The DSN configuration, and uh, there was some other super minor issue that had happened. Uh, ben talked about last week, but see that that minor that it's not even memorable. <laughs> yeah, I do gotta say I like Ryan R in the chats. Uh, philosophical approach that uh, all splashdowns are touchdowns, but not all touchdowns are splashdowns, which. I like that idea because it is touching down on the ocean surface <laughs> and making a splash. Whereas, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can touch water, but you can't splash down on dry land. The finalists return for the HLS two, the human lander, the human landing system, right? Uh, two. Mm. Uh, yeah. So this is back in the news again. The former losers, I guess you could say, are putting in a bid to become the future winners. <laughs> I, I like that I refer to them as the finalists and you, you want to refer to them as the losers, which <laughs> I true. mean, both are true. <laughs> yeah, they, they they lost that to SpaceX during the round one of the, uh, the HLS bidding, which was appendix uh, letter, I think it's N. This is all those appendices, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but this this is... I think this is exciting because right, just a reminder that this is, you know, the whole human landing system is a public-private partnership, like commercial cargo and crew, which have been wonderful, successful programs so far. And so, you know, have uh, high hopes for HLS as, uh, as well. But um, th- that first round, you had five teams. Um, two of them were winnowed out or, you know, uh, and didn't make it to the final round. But you had a team led by Blue Origin, a team led by... Uh, uh, Dynetics, and then a uh, and SpaceX, and SpaceX won with their Starship proposal, I guess a lunar Starship, and the whole thing was, right, let's pick two, but there wasn't enough funding for two, and so the idea was that this was a kind of tactical decision to kind of force Congress to give more money to the program so that 
It's like, okay, well, we're going to put all our eggs in this one starship basket. And so if you want a second lander, you got to give us more money. And uh, and also keep in mind that uh, SpaceX, uh, their bid was much lower than uh, Dynetics or Blue Origins. And so as far as what's coming up, uh, Starship will be the human landing system that's planned for Artemis 3 in late 2025 or 2026, or depending on how much it slips, uh, who knows, uh, while the uh, finalists slash losers have returned. <laughs> um, Blue, uh, both of them contested it, which I, th- I, I want to say that that's kind of standard practice. And so while I remember around the time Blue Origin had some really kind of like unprofessional looking mm-hmm. uh, advertisements and like graphics that they were posting on social media that seems kind of like eh, a little distasteful. But as far as the the con- contesting the award, as I understand it, that's kind of standard. If you, if you lose one, it's kind of like appealing a court case that you lost, right? You just always appeal even if, you know, it's not really going to work. You know, you, you take your shot. And so, but yeah, both of them uh, appealed the loss and those appeals were the appeals, I guess, were rejected, and yeah, and so we've got uh, Lunar Starship will be our our first landing system, but uh, yeah, what I, HLS two is really sustaining lunar development, and that's getting the money now and doing a new appendix, <laughs> letter and number and whatnot, and trying to say, okay, well, we we wanted to have two landers, so how are we going to go about this? And so, uh, in addition to picking a second lander, this uh, SLD Sustaining Lunar Development Program also involves SpaceX, right? SpaceX obviously, well, it's not obvious, but SpaceX couldn't bid the second time because after all, they already won and they're going to be the, uh, uh, at least one of the human landing systems. And so what they did do though recently was get a separate deal for the upgraded Starship lander for Artemis 4 and onwards. And so this was the idea where probably Artemis 3, right, would be the real quick, you know, you like Apollo 11, right? You touch down, you get your boots on the ground, you do something, and then you get out of there. But as far as a you know, uh, more sustainable type of lander, uh, that's what the recent deal that they got with um, this SLD program was, which is great. And so that's going to be very cool because as I can imagine, a lunar starship could probably do some really amazing stuff on the surface. <laughs> so, so, so what we're looking at now are these non-SpaceX companies uh, bidding to become the second lander with the idea for context that NASA is saying, you know, we want to have one landing a year, I guess once we get things going, for 10 years. And so we know there's already a big gap between Artemis 1, which right, we literally yeah. just watched splash down 30 minutes ago, and we've got a pretty big gap between that and Artemis 2, which will be crude, but won't be a lunar landing. And so that's that's why I use the term aspirational, uh, a landing a year for the next 10 years. SLS is a very expensive vehicle mm-hmm. and so we'll see how that goes but so given that the uh the sld bids were due recently um we don't know all the teams that bid but two of them made themselves known and they are the big players and the ones that were the finalists in that last round and so there's blue origin that referred to itself as the national team the first time around and they're still doing that uh, but there's been a little bit of a shakeup. so initially it was blue origin Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper. Uh, and and if I remember correctly, there was also like, you know, th- these, I guess, were the headline, you know, biggest players contributing because there's, you know, there's always going to be, I feel like, smaller, you know, groups that are um, and businesses and companies and corporations that are involved. But those are kind of the headlining ones. 
And now, though, uh, the biggest thing is that Northrop is out, and Boeing, Astrobotic, and Honeybee are in. And so that's an mm. interesting change. Because when you think about like what I referred to as kind of pedigree, right? Blue Origin, they've got a new shepherd, but otherwise they're kind of notorious for, you know, uh, not really having hardware for things other than suborbital tourist flights. Right? You think that's a fair thing to say about Blue? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but but Lockheed, you know, which is, you know, still part of this national team, obviously they've got incredible, you know, pedigree. Uh, Orion, right? <laughs> they, you know, they built Orion. Uh, they built Osiris Rex. They, you know, were building the external tank on shuttle. So they, they obviously are, you know, just infamously big player. And then Draper, of course, uh, they, they built the uh, Apollo guidance computer. And so they were part of, because that, that national team, you know, Draper was involved in Apollo very much so, getting, uh, you know, the astronauts to the moon with the AGC. And Northrop, they built the LEM, the lander itself. And so that was kind of like those two, I, I thought that they were going to be kind of a strong contender for uh, actually winning it. Um, but Starship just beat it out on their merits as well as their bidding. And so getting rid of Northrop is kind of like, all right, that's a little tough. And then adding Boeing, which, I mean, I got to say, it's kind of been a basket case for the last several years in terms of just not just their space program, but also their aviation division, right, with the... 737 Max and all that um, that's been going on. But, you know, they are still a big player, and so they can contribute a lot, I figure. They were, you know, big enough, I guess, to bid on their own during the last HLS one. Uh, they were one of those two teams that was weeded out early on and didn't become a finalist. And so they managed to, I guess, join Blue Origin and make, or at least they put in the bid, but they're hoping, I guess, this time to make it to the, the final round, which I'm sure they will with, you know, the kind of money and you know, groups that are part of this national team. And so, Vivace was the other team that was weeded out early on, if anyone's curious. And then, um, and then Astrobotic and Honeybee are cool because, right, Astrobotic is very much involved in the, with the lunar program um, that NASA's setting up right now. They got the Peregrine lander uh, that's trying to get there, you know, possibly first on the moon. Didn't they, and they just acquired, whatchamacallit? Oh, Mastin! Mastin Space. Oh, yeah, right. So that's even cooler there to get, you know, Mastin Heritage involved with this team, which, I mean, I love Mastin so much. <laughs> Just so cool. And so so Astrobotic seems like a logical pick in terms of, you know, a company that's involved in getting hardware to the surface of the moon. And, uh, and then Honeybee Robotics has a, a, a lot of history as well um, and, and just... For example, they they are involved in a lot of uh, robotic spacecraft. So they they put hardware on the like basically every Mars lander, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, uh, maybe not Insight, but on on Phoenix, uh, Spirit, and Oppy, uh, Curiosity, and Perseverance all had Honeybee uh, uh, on there. And uh, they also are involved in Dragonfly, which based on pictures I saw on their website, I'm guessing it's the kind of sampler that they have on one of the landing legs for fire, uh, for Dragonfly, as well as the Martian Moons Exploration or MMX mission, which, uh, if I remember correctly, that's a JAXA one that wants to go check out Phobos and Deimos, uh, Moons of Mars, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, so MMX is supposed to, is, is intending to be a sample return, right, which JAXA is excellent at, and Honeybee evidently is really good at sample return. Um, or sampling mechanisms as well. I'm, ass I'm assuming they probably were related to the Phoenix, the scoop on Phoenix, because um, that had a little bit of sampling going on. And of course, 
curiosity and perseverance have arms that go and dig in the dirt where perseverance is straight up collecting samples, but curiosity does some good drilling. But but in any event, so they're a pretty, you know, strong addition, I would say, to the team. And so that's uh that's one of the two players that have made themselves known. And while it doesn't have a name uh like the national team kind of gave to everybody, they refer to it as the, the Dynetics team, or as I like to call them, the Alpacas, are now Dynetics and Northrop Grumman. And so Northrop has moved to who they competed against in the first round of HLS, which is kind of interesting yeah, to see there. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so Dynetics, I, I think we had pulled ourselves, and they were kind of our favorite one, right? They got Alpacas, the very uh, low and long it's like it's not a tall spacecraft, but it's very wide. It's got the drop tanks yeah. that would be released at kind of low altitude above the moon, and they could potentially be repurposed as you know fuel depots or something else on the lunar surface or something cool. Um, or I guess they could potentially land on something and break <laughs> uh, something that's there, but probably not. Yeah, mm. but the only problem is, is it uh, you know as it turned out, it just wasn't. Um, it was grossly overweight. <laughs> it, yeah, it had this whole negative mass problem, and in fact, as I was. Typing into Google just to search a few things. If you type in Dynetics, the third thing down is actually negative mass. Like that's what Google gives you back. Oh my goodness! But yeah, that was like a big issue. It was just too heavy, uh-huh. and they and they couldn't shave that weight. And so really, yeah, I mean, they kind of had to lose. But hopefully, they've fixed some things since then. They've gone back to the drawing board. I mean, I don't know what uh, their new proposal will be exactly, but I'm hoping that they've addressed those problems because, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it is a cool, innovative idea. And it kind of looks cool. I mean, it probably doesn't look as cool as a starship landing on the moon, um, granted, but mm. um, as far as lunar landers go, it's a pretty novel design. Yeah. And, and being so close to the ground, right, it's got advantages there and everything. But True. It- yeah. But that, that weight, that negative mass issue was yeah, totally disqualifying. And so they, they I think they were the only ones that got kind of like a a more they, they had a worse grade than the national team in SpaceX mm-hmm. during round one because it was it was just it just wasn't feasible. But I, I, I'm assuming that, you know, being able to get Northrop to go in on this bid with them, they have a plan to resolve those issues. And so mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see how it changes. Um, and that's something that I, I definitely want to talk about. Hopefully, we'll you know know more and we'll find out some more technical details. Now that they've paired with Northrop, I don't know what it'll, what it'll be called, if it'll still be the alpaca, right? I mean, that's what they called it, right? The actual lander itself was called that? Yes. Alpaca stood for... Um, Stands for Dynetics Autonomous Logistics Platform for All Moon Cargo Access. And I don't know if Northrop's going to want to have something with their name attached to it as well. Uh, but at least uh, we they did when they did this announcement. Because like I said, these probably aren't the only two bidders. Or at least we don't know if they're the only two bidders. Uh, but they're the only two that have gone uh, and announced their bids. But as part of that announcement, they did reveal... Or did show basically a render of what looked like, you know, a, very similar to Alpaca, the the long squat vehicle with the drop tanks and the vertical solar panels, and uh, and 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 then it's just worth mentioning the national team hasn't revealed uh, a, a new look to what their vehicle will be, but their original bid had the integrated lander vehicle or ILV. And we saw kind of a mock-up of that at IAC 2021, because I think that was the big announcement that Lockheed was going to do the ascent module, I think. I think the blue, like the bottom part was like the blue lander, and the upper part was, there was a, there was a stack of a few different things. Yeah, it was a stack, yeah. And so, uh, I'm yeah, I'm excited to talk about it in more detail when these teams reveal more information, and hopefully 
we can learn about some of these other teams that have bid as well uh, when they either announce themselves or when NASA kind of announces the results of this. But really exciting because this is going to be the type of thing where, you know, we'll look back on this episode almost like it's quaint when we find out what actually shakes out. You know, who won, uh, what got built, what landed, and where we are, yeah. you know, three, four, five years down the road from now. All right, so this week, let's just do two short and sweet, since there's just two of us. Uh, Dennis, what's the first? First up, new Chinese rocket debuts with a sea launch. The Geelong 3 rocket had a successful launch on its maiden flight. The four-stage, solid-motor-powered launch vehicle took a rideshare of 14 satellites to sun-synchronous orbit, taking off from the Tairui Barge in the Yellow Sea in the early afternoon. Eight of the 14 payloads were Jilin Gaofeng satellites, part of a remote sensing constellation. Geelong 3, which means Smart Dragon 3, is actually the second rocket launched with the Geelong name. Geelong 1 was part of an earlier program intended to enable fast and cheap launches, and the once-planned Geelong 2 rocket was canceled in 2021. Next up, Dear Moon crew is revealed. The billionaire Maizawa Yusaku has announced the names of the eight fellow crew members for his upcoming private space explorer mission, along with his two backup crewmates. Announced in 2018, the Dear Moon project intends to fly a crew around the moon on a Starship spacecraft. Maizawa, who has flown to the ISIS on MS-20, will serve as the commander with the following mission specialists. DJ Steve Aoki, Czech choreographer Yemi A.D., photographers Rhiannon Adam and Karim Ilya, documentary filmmaker Brandon Hall, actor Dev Joshi, South Korean rapper T.O.P., and the inimitable and one and only Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, soon to be astronaut, or I guess real astronaut. I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> so Tim Dodd, so Tim Dodd's going to uh, the moon or going around the moon. That's crazy, right? That's <laughs> like, wild. Congratulations. Yeah. Good for him. Very, very well deserved. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like excited for him. Slightly worried. Actually, surprisingly, I don't know why I feel that way. I mean, I guess it's only natural, but I was like, wow, he's going to the moon. Like he's just be careful because it's, you know, the moon. But that's exciting. That's 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 crazy. Like, yeah, that's deep space, you know. Yeah, and apparently he's known for some time. He said in his video where he posted it on his channel that you know he said he's known this for some time. But I guess now is when they're actually revealing it. So, um, it's it's super exciting. <laughs> Super exciting. So, moving on to this week in space flight history, we have six winners. So, we got a bunch of winners here. Um, we had one winner who got the correct answer but did not guess the exact reason for the clue, and that is Henry. So, so sorry about that. Uh, the rest of the winners who did make a reference to the clue were, um, let's see, we have Uncle Willie, Cy Kyle, Hydrak, the Greek, and Deskin Miller. And the, the clue was, I believe, that's a long way to go to hard boil an egg. Or something ah. to that effect. So the event was the landing of Venera 7, which was the first spacecraft to return data from another planet. And I guess we'll get to the egg pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so this is a <laughs> spacecraft that has a lander that looks kind of like an egg. Kind of. Not exactly, but kind of. And so that's yeah. where that – or that's the connection. The overall uh, mission was very similar in design to the Venera 5 and 6. Uh, and several others, really. It was like a series of these Venera missions and one, I believe, to Mars. And they all had um, a spacecraft bus that looked – it was basically like one of two main designs. And we had – I don't remember now, but we had talked about one of them some time ago, maybe just a couple months ago because it has a particular look. looks kind of like a – I don't know. It looks kind of like – it looks kind of like an R2-D2 with wings uh, with like these little mm. – 
I don't know how else to describe it. It has like a round head and it has these two slightly looking aerodynamic solar panels off to the side. And that was um and that was one of the spacecraft buses for the earlier Venera spacecraft. This one doesn't quite look like that, but it's a similar bus to previous missions, so there wasn't a whole lot changed. The pressure vessel itself, and this is the part that basically or the probe, this is what lands on the surface of Venus, uh the thing that uh transmitted back to Earth uh, from, you know, another planet for the first time. I actually didn't get the measurements. It's not very big, though. A couple feet in diameter, 490 kilograms, so pretty heavy. Um, and it's a spherical shell with no seams, welds, or holes. Um, however, it's not it's not a complete sphere. It's a spherical shape, um, but there is a top surface that has, you know, some sensors and probes and other things that are attached to it. Um, but the part that is spherical, yeah, there's no seams or welds or anything. In, and it's made out of titanium, uh, so that's the actual pressure vessel. Um, so pretty robust. Uh, and it's lined with shock-absorbing material because it would be touching down on, on the surface maybe a little bit harder than past probes. And there's a reason for that that we'll talk about. It is thermally insulated with fiberglass. And actually, as I read... Uh, it is fiberglass on the bottom half of the sphere and then glass wool on the top. I'm not sure why that you know yeah. distinction. But yeah, so it's going to have to be thermally insulated since it's going to be on the surface of Venus. Just a, an interesting like little bit of, I think, history is that uh, for all of – basically all of the spacecraft, the, the robotic spacecraft that the Russians did, they always – I think like really always had them in kind of pressurized, thermally controlled – Vessels, so they never sent like you know radiation hardened soft uh, hardware to space until maybe like recently. But like during the space race, that was kind of their approach. Was like, okay, let's make it a nice, safe environment, and that's where we'll have our electronics and our sensors and detectors and all that good stuff. Whereas the U.S. approach, we often had things that were just exposed to. Yeah, the vacuum of space. See, I don't know that. I mean, I figured that it mm. would be the approach for landing something on Venus uh, for obvious reasons. I didn't know about the other – like there was just a general design approach. And I'm sorry. And, and I just – like I, I felt like that was a nice uh, little bit of history to slip in there. Mm. But I'm sure that they had to go above and beyond with the the Venusian surface to try to make it survive there. <laughs> yeah. So, so you're, yeah, you are right about that for sure. But just in general, it's not like, okay, well, if this thing's just going to be orbiting Venus, we won't have to worry about insulation and pressurization mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But they, they still would do that. Yeah. So the pressure vessel itself, it, uh, it contained an aneroid barometer. And I looked this up because I don't know much about barometers, but basically this is kind of like the barometer I think that you would see hanging on a wall in like an old-timey picture or whatever. Um, but mm. the actual way that the mechanism works is it, it's kind of like a little uh, flattened, what looks like a tin can. Uh, it's partially evacuated, and then the top of that can is actually corrugated, and it moves slightly depending on the air pressure. And then that's what moves like you know a little lever, and then that's what moves the hand of a dial and so forth. There's like a whole mechanism that you know moves the hand on the thing that looks like a clock. Surface, but it's actually not a clock. Mm. It denotes pressure. Um, I'm sure you've seen those you know, barometers. I've never, I don't know if I've ever even seen one in real life, but I see them in like old TV shows. Yeah, I, I, I envision this on the the ship of, on the on the bridge of a ship. Like yeah, that. yeah. So yeah, that's an aneroid barometer, um, and then it had a resistance thermometer, uh, and that's obviously to take. Uh, thermal readings um, because it's going to – and I should say this, you know, at this point in history, so this is, you know, 1970, there wasn't a whole lot. And I don't know if I, I – did I give the date? Uh, December 15th, 1970? I might not have. But if not, that's when it occurred, December 15th, 1970. <laughs> but yeah, so this was at a point when there wasn't a whole lot, believe it or not, that was known about Venus. I mean, I suppose in some ways there still isn't. But they were still trying to confirm some basic information because they were – you know, they had only taken – uh, some observations from a distance, maybe from orbit, but um, exactly what is the 
you know, atmospheric pressure, the composition, you know, so on and so forth. And so that's what uh, this mission was, uh, you know, meant to do is just, you know, kind of get uh, these basic baseline, you know, like measurements that you would have about, you know, the surface of a planet and uh, its atmosphere and all that. Now, the spacecraft bus uh, that carried a solar wind detector and a cosmic ray detector like I say, every twist, if there's always a cosmic ray detector, that's uh, <laughs> that's required. Mm-hmm. Uh, the launch of the uh, spacecraft itself was on the 17th of August, 1970. So that's not too long. That's about four or five months. So it didn't take long to get to Venus. Um, it was launched into a parking orbit aboard a Molnia M booster. So then it launched from the Tijoli Sputnik to Venus. So I kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. So the Tijoli Sputnik, which is Russian for uh, heavy satellite, was originally called Venera 1, the actual launch vehicle, but was actually renamed to Tijoli Sputnik. This rename happened after its first launch, which was some years prior, I think back in 1963, when uh, the upper stage failed to separate due to a fuel cavitation issue on that upper stage's pump. So the Soviet government, in order to avoid any embarrassment, they actually just renamed it the heavy satellite, which is to say they just wanted the whole chunk to be called a heavy satellite like like as opposed to a failed interplanetary stage. So they kind of just, you know, retro named it and said, oh, no, this is the heavy satellite, not this spacecraft that failed to separate from the upper stage of, you know, the rocket. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of okay. interesting. Yeah, they renamed it. So that when I guess observations were being taken of a spacecraft that didn't separate, they said, well, no, that's not what happened. It's just a very big satellite. And that's why it looks like that. <laughs> um, but in this case, it did actually separate because if not, then it wouldn't have made it to Venus. Sorry, just in episode 359, this was sounding also familiar. And I realized mm-hmm. that was a twist of Venera 1. Okay, yeah, yeah, Cause, and cause that's the, probably where I'm. Yeah, that's where we're, 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 our, our memories are coming back because that was yeah. May of this year. And then also, as a side note, a week after this launch, a another Venera Seven was launched, and that one failed due to um, a different upper stage problem. Uh, and so they renamed that one Cosmos 359 in order to conceal its failure. So they said, oh, no, this isn't a Venera spacecraft. This is just Cosmos 359. I don't know what they said that it did, like, you know, what the purpose of this particular mission was if it wasn't going anywhere. And it, I don't know how the Soviet government spun that. But, um, uh-huh. but yeah, you can see that from these two instances, they were very much in the business of hiding their failures. Um, and just re- and just renaming things, uh, you know, sort of like calling it after the fact. So yeah, at this point, it's on its way to Venus. Uh, it made two mid-course corrections on the second of October and the seventeenth of November, um, and then it, uh, you know, had its arrival at Venus. So um, just prior to separation from the main spacecraft bus, which actually did partially started its reentry into the atmosphere, um, you know, like before it separated, uh, the bus actually cooled it down to negative eight Celsius just to get it as cold as possible. So at this point, the probe separated from the bus um, and uh, it had entered on the night side of Venus, performed an aerodynamic braking maneuver for capture. And, and so, yeah, and so it's actually after that point that it actually separated, I guess I should say. I don't know if I worded that. I think I got the uh, sentences there reversed. So it enters into a uh, braking maneuver. It's cooling down and then partially through that braking slash capture slash, you know, descent, that's when it detaches from the main bus and then the probe starts its descent. Um, and then after that point, the parachute deploys at 60 kilometers altitude. The communications antenna deploys, and that's for the signal return because I guess up until then, the contact up until that point was with the bus itself. So this is for the probe to maintain communications. The parachute, I could not find this out. Uh, I actually found a Russian website had to 
use Google Translate and it still didn't help much. What the parachute is made of, I don't know, but it's something that they call glass nitron, which um, I don't even know how Google translates that because the actual Russian was something like, I guess a word that means means glass, but there was no hyphen, but it's actually glass hyphen nitron. So if anyone hmm. knows what that is, let me know. Um, but it's a domestic material, quote unquote. So, and it's apparently very heat resistant, but not heat resistant enough. <laughs> so the parachute was reefed to 1.8 square meters. Um, and then it was fully deployed to 2.5 square meters, which is, you know, not very big. And the way that this reefing was done or this, you know, change in the size of the parachute was via a melting line. Uh, so this is a line that basically holds uh, the parachute in a slightly more constrained, you know, or it holds those lines closer together, keeping it much more constrained so that it's just, you know, about 1.8 square meters. Then that line at 200 degrees melts uh, and then the parachute fully deploys. So they kind of had a built-in mechanism there because they knew that it was going to get up to that temperature. So mm. that's how you get full deployment. You just let the very thing that's constraining it melt because it definitely is going to melt in the atmosphere of Venus. That's clever. Yeah, pretty cool. And um, so why only 2.5 square meters? Because previous missions had larger parachutes, but this one's smaller because they needed to speed the descent. Um, the, because the name of the game, it seems, when you're going to Venus is to get to the surface as quickly as possible so that you can do your science. Because just, you know, like every second that you're spending inside the atmosphere is quickly killing the spacecraft. And, and I think that that's why they had, uh, you know, that shock absorbing material as well, because um, they knew that it was probably going to be a bit of a quick fall. So this parachute only lasted six minutes before it ripped. So if something gave way, I don't know how high up it was at this point, but it fell for another 29 minutes. And, and I read at least one source that said that it wasn't that high up, but several others that said it was about 29 to 30 minutes. So, um, and I just want to ask you, does this sound reasonable? I mean, it's a thick atmosphere and it's about nine tenths the gravity of Earth. So can something be in free fall for 29 minutes from only about 60 miles up or even less than that? Does that seem that possible? That seems incredibly high. Um, yeah. I mean, all those like, I mean, I'm just thinking about like strat these like these jumps that people were doing, like high altitude balloon jumps. We're not even close to that. <laughs> and that was even under parachute for uh, a part of the time. And I mean, the the acceleration from the planet is going to be about the same that you get from Earth. So it's not like that would be one thing. Like, like if you were trying to land on, or free fall through like, you know, Titan's atmosphere, I could see it being like surprisingly long. But like, but yeah, even the thicker atmosphere, I can't imagine that that kind of drag slows you down. So your terminal velocity is so low that it's half an hour of just falling that's that's a lot i'm i'm surprised i, I haven't done the math but yeah my other hypothesis here because it wasn't specified in anything that i could read is that maybe it was a partial failure so i read from one source that it failed at about 10 meters high or at least failed completely um, and that's my theory. And so it fell from maybe only 10 meters at full speed. Because obviously, if you're falling from, say, 50 kilometers up or whatever, you're going to hit terminal velocity. It's just a question of what that terminal velocity is. But if you're falling from only 10 meters, then an impact that's not going to smash the spacecraft seems much more likely. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, the impact speed was 17 meters per second or about 38 miles per hour or 61 kilometers per hour. So fast, but not too fast. And for something that's, you know, reinforced with a titanium shell, I would think that that's probably good enough, uh, you know, to keep everything on board safe. And it was determined that the impact was on a hard surface. There was actually an accelerometer of sorts that was on board. I don't know if it's what we would call like, you know, a modern one, but they had equipment that could actually measure the deceleration of the probe. And so they were able to determine 
uh, due to how quickly it you know decelerated what the surface was like. And so it was a hard, rocky surface, which is not surprising for Venus. I don't know if there's even – I mean, I guess there's sand. It looks like from you know some of the few images we have, but – I don't know. Mm. It, it's probably not a. There's probably not too many fluffy sand dunes on Venus. Yeah, no. Probably was yeah, nice, nice hard touchdown. Yeah, <laughs> it just all looks like just just burnt rock. I don't know. Yeah, but at this time, hell, I don't know if even at this time they didn't know if it didn't have jungles or not. Right? Maybe it landed in a. It could have landed in a peat moss yeah. or something. <laughs> I don't know. So, so the signal. What happened after it hit the surface at this? off nominally high speed. The telemetry they were getting back, it immediately became very weak and then it reached full strength for one second and then it seemed to disappear. So um, that would seem to indicate, and this is what the scientists concluded and I think that they were right, uh, that it probably toppled onto its side or it, it might have rocked for a second and then you know, for just a second was pointing in the right direction and then eventually rolled onto its side and then the signal was gone um, or so they thought. So uh, later analysis because they did keep you know, like recording and listening for any transmissions, they found out later after – better analysis that it did continue to transmit for another 23 minutes, um, although very, very faintly. So the antenna was probably pointed in the wrong direction, but they were still getting something back. Hmm. And that's how they concluded that, yeah, the probe rolled onto its side. And yeah, and so due to a mechanical switch malfunction, uh, the temperature readings could be transmitted, but the rest of the data could not. So this is like some sort of a physical switch that I guess was like actuated uh, maybe remotely or maybe it was just automatically done, but uh, it, it, it had gotten stuck into one position. So the probe was only transmitting back temperature. Uh, but the surface pressure was extrapolated from temperature readings uh, and some atmospheric modeling that they were able to do at 92 bar or about 1,350 PSI. When you were talking earlier, um, I, I went and tried to look up what you know the other earlier Veneras. And even though they had their own issues, basically crash landing, uh, three and four, it sounds like uh, crash landed. But um, and, and didn't really signal much back, but they were able to get some information on it, probably uh, at least for Veneer 4, at least before uh, impact. And so at that point, they kind of knew that the surface pressure was going to be really high. But at least on Wikipedia, I'm seeing based on Veneer 4 and Mariner 5 that they could basically uh, bracket it somewhere between 75 to 100 uh, atmospheres. That's a lot. Yeah. Oh, and it looks like uh, Veneer 4 also uh, just imploded probably <laughs> while it was passing through the atmosphere because it didn't have a whole strength that could withstand that. So the thermometer on board did measure a temperature of 475 degrees Celsius, uh, which is you know what we know now about how hot it is. Uh, I forget what that is in Fahrenheit, it's, but it's hot. It's over 1,000 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Super freaking hot. And yeah, uh, that's kind of where I, where I left it. Um, so it was a, you know, I think overall, well – partially successful mission but like i think any kind of success is to be applauded because when you're going to venus it's just it's just hard um and i find it fascinating like anything that can go down to the surface of the damn planet and send back anything just very very cool yeah venera 7 the little lander that could and did for the first time yeah really interesting mission thank you for picking that one and for digging deep into russian language sources <laughs> sure <laughs> And yeah, and so since Ben's not going to be here next week either, uh, I'm going to throw it back to you. So God, next week, uh, the date range is the 20th of December through the 26th. And do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1968. Just calm down. All right. Good advice in general. Yeah, I guess with the holidays coming up, you know, just 
Just calm down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I don't know what that means, but if anyone out there thinks that they know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right. Well, let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. We had a bunch of those, and we have eight of them this week. Uh, things are just not slowing down, so I guess it's just going to be a run-up to the end of the year. <laughs> well, first up, we have uh, a launch from Land Space. This is their Juche 2 rocket uh, attempting its maiden flight. And this will be pretty wild if it works, because Juche uh, stands for vermilion, or means vermilion bird. But this is a methane-fueled rocket, so potentially the first methane-fueled rocket to go orbital. So good luck to Landspace. Um, they're planning to right now launch uh, on Wednesday, December 14th at 0822 to 1044 UTC. And this would be out of Juchuan in China. And then next on the 14th is the coverage of the Russian Spacewalk 56 on the International Space Station. And this is to move a radiator from the RASFIT module to the Nauka Multipurpose Laboratory module. Um, and it's scheduled to begin – well, the coverage begins at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, and the, the actual spacewalk begins at 9.20 p.m. Eastern Time. So check that out. And so that's – Anna Kikana is going to be operating the arm from inside to actually grab it. So really cool. Mm -hmm. And that will be kind of a big deal. Um, yeah. So next up, we have uh, our second launch of the week. And so this will be a Falcon 9 Block 5. Uh, that will be taking SWAT, the Surface Water and Ocean Topography spacecraft. And so this is an altimeter, right? Bouncing radar, radar or LIDAR. I actually don't know what. It's going to be bouncing something, um, probably LIDAR, but uh, off the, uh, the Earth's surface and measuring the trip time. And from that, you can get the uh, height of the, uh, the the water. And so really good for ocean measurements. And so this will be a cool one. Uh, goes to leo and that launches on thursday december 15th at 11:46 utc and this is flying out of vandenberg and then also on the 15th uh, we have uh again uh the launch of an electron uh in the mission is virginia is for launch lovers so this was scheduled for last week i think it was uh on december 13th though or at least no earlier than the 13th and now it's a no earlier than december 15th but we do have an actual launch window now so that is a uh, 2300 utc through 0100 utc the following day so starting on the 15th uh through the 16th so it straddles those two days or at least it does if you're looking at utc um and yeah this is the rideshare mission with three hawkeye 360 satellites and other payloads but it doesn't um i don't remember what those are but anyway yeah it's going to lower <laughs> orbit um, launching from Wallops, and that's the big news. I'll be excited to see that when it actually happens. Uh, hopefully, it will launch on the 15th this time. So, yep, good luck. Uh, and then up next, I continue to have our space, SpaceX launches of the week. And so this is another Falcon 9 Block 5, and this will be taking one that had also slipped and we mentioned earlier. This is the O3B Empower uh, 1 and 2 uh, spacecraft, the first and second of a constellation of 11 high-throughput communication satellites that are going to MEO, medium Earth orbit. So that's pretty cool and uh, not, uh, yeah, it doesn't happen often enough. And so uh, this launch is uh, slated for Friday, December 16th with an instantaneous uh, launch at 2121 UTC uh, flying out of the Cape. Slick 40. And then on the 19th, we have another spacewalk. So this is U.S. Spacewalk 83 uh, aboard the ISS. And this is the rollout of IROSA on the station's port 4 truss for the 4A power channel. So uh, this is another one. I think it's the same two same two astronauts, right? We have Rubio and Caseta or uh, Casada, uh, as I recall. Yeah, they've been doing the previous one, so... 
Yeah, I bet. Yep. But yeah, so coverage of that begins at 6.30 and the actual spacewalk is expected to begin around 7.40 um, and that's in the morning Eastern time. So yeah, 6.30 in the morning and 7.40 in the morning uh, Eastern time. So yep, uh, check out that one as well. So lots of spacewalks to look at. And our penultimate event and final launch of the upcoming week is a Vega C from Ariane Spas that will be taking the Pleiades Neo 5 and 6 uh spacecraft to orbit. These are the last two in a constellation of uh, basically high-resolution Earth observation sats built by Airbus. And so they'll be going to SSO, and the launch window is also instantaneous, well, as it is for SSOs, uh, uh, targeting Wednesday, December 21st, with a launch from Kourou in French Guiana. And then after that, uh, if you thought we were done with spacewalks, we're not. We have one more <laughs> uh, on the 21st. Uh, so this is another Russian spacewalk. This is 57. Um, yeah, we just talked about 56. So this is um, this is also aboard uh, the ISS, obviously. And uh, this is to move an experiment airlock from the Rosset module to the Nauka module. The cosmonauts will be Prokopiev in uh, Pitalin, and the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, the coverage, however, will begin at 6.30, so yeah, a, a half hour sooner. Uh, so yeah, 6.30 p.m. and 7 p.m. are your times for this one. All right, so those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Half of which were spacewalks. All right, that might be the most we've done in one week. All right. Um, well, with that, uh, let's go ahead and deal with the show. And we would like to thank Roland Jenkins and Tim Dot for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to VT, Colin, Deathkin, Chris, a.k.a. Stig Garfield, Ryan R., Stanley for you, Dave M., The Greek, Sai Kyle, Calvin Stu, and Gopal for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.